Brothers and sisters, let us stand together for the reading of God's Word. Moving ahead in Acts 18, looking at Paul's planning principles today, learning some more about the path of wisdom as the Lord Jesus, our Savior, led Paul. We can learn to be led as well. I'll read from verse 9 through to verse 28 from chapter 18, the verses of focus there. Uh, Verses 18 through 23. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia, and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So Paul knew that he was to be doing the Lord's will. And he knew the big picture that Christ had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. We see that in Acts 9 when he was first called. But how did Paul know exactly where and when to go? How did he know? We do see we've learned some lessons in this regard already as we've looked at Acts. We see Paul's first missionary journey began on Cyprus. Why Cyprus? Well, we see it was Barnabas' home country. That was probably part of the providence. 
And then it stretched across that first missionary journey all the way across the southern Galatia near to his home, his boy at home of Tarsus. Again, likely those providences shaping his choices. Later during his second journey, we see Paul wandering there in Phrygia. He's hindered, we're told, by the Lord from preaching in Asia or in Bithynia. And so he keeps moving westward to Troas where he receives the Macedonian vision. He keeps moving. It's one of the principles of following Christ. So we need to keep moving. It's hard to steer a ship that's not moving. All along, Paul is guided by the principle that he must preach to the Jews first. You know, he's called to be to the apostle of the Gentiles, but he must preach to the Jews first. So synagogue locations, therefore, are a part of what guides him. These are the landmarks along the way where he's going to go. We can gather some more principles of wise, wisely following after the Lord as we study today's text. We'll see that Paul completes this phase of ministry at Corinth, and then he leaves with Priscilla and Aquila for Syria. He's on his way back to Antioch. We see that he completes the requirements of this vow, which we'll talk about, and then he leaves Priscilla and Aquila at Ephesus, preaches in the synagogue at Ephesus, but declines to stay longer there because that he must, by all means, keep this coming Passover feast at Jerusalem. We see that he visits with the Jerusalem church, and then he rests some at his home sweet home church of Antioch before putting his hand to the plow and beginning his third missionary journey. Then, of course, as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God more fully. So Paul completes this phase of ministry at Corinth. It's been a long time, if you will. It's been his uh, spot where he spent the most time, kind of his ministry hub for his second missionary journey. He still remained there a good while. So even after the success uh, with Gallio, he didn't leave. He can continue preaching for a good while, so he stays for longer. The threats of the Jews and the Romans at this point in time are pretty much subsided, so he stays a bit longer after that. So what we see is this provides, providentially, Paul the unstressed time he needs to complete this phase of ministry at Corinth. So while Paul continues to minister via writings and later visits to Corinth, he's comfortable leaving at this point in time. This initial phase of foundation work of planting that church is now finished enough for him to move on. Calvin says, what is the cause then that he stayed at Corinth? To wit, when he saw that the enemies were provoked with his presence to rage against the whole church, he did not doubt but that the faithful should have peace and rest by his departure. So that's what he would do in the past. But now when he sees their malice bridled so that they cannot hurt the flock of God, he'd rather sting and nettle them than by departing minister unto them and any new occasion of rage. So he stays. He's received the covering of Gallio. And his presence appears as though it's going to be some sort of settling presence for him to stay. He takes advantage of it. So what we see here is Paul's demonstrating this overarching principle that he follows to stay and minister if no providence stops it or if no other priority is hindering it. It's an objective thing that Paul can see. So we see Paul, don't we, weighing providence and principle to make his plan. 
He knew the work in Corinth was not as complete as he wanted it to be. And he saw that the Jewish storm had been calmed by Gallio. So unlike in other cities where he had left after persecution arose, this time he stayed on until a fuller work could be completed by him. He could minister more deeply to souls. Perhaps he could do some counseling ministry for individuals and for uh, married couples and for families. Perhaps he could do some training uh, to help raise up new leaders in the church. Those next phases that we need to go to. And surely he was continuing to preach the gospel and seek new converts as well. We also see that he wants to stay until the work is completed, if the Lord allows. And as we'll see later, Paul's vow might have been connected to completing this work in Corinth. It's conceivable that the vow he took had to do with this missionary journey. We don't really know, but that's possible. So what happens next? He leaves with Priscilla and Aquila for Syria. So he takes his leave of the brethren. He sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So he brought them with him. So two things that we see here in terms of timing, in terms of Paul's decision-making. First is his inner sense that the work in Corinth is well enough along that he can leave. So you can see there are subjective aspects to decision-making as well. And in verse 21... Paul is compelled to keep the coming Passover feast at Jerusalem. And we don't know exactly why, but this is a, a subjective way that God is leading Paul at this point in time. Uh, he wants to keep this particular feast at Jerusalem. Commentary says his haste is probably due to a wish to reach Jerusalem for the Passover festival before the sea traffic stops for the winter. If Paul waited until after winter, the window for travel to reach Jerusalem for Passover would be short. Only a handful of days in March were open for sailing on this route since sailing did not start until March 10th and Passover was in early April. So there were travel considerations and we know that he wanted to take Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus. There may have been direct journeying available to Jerusalem that maybe he could have made it, made it if he had left later. But he wanted to get Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus and he wanted to get to Jerusalem on time. You can see how he's planning and these various principles are in place that he's putting together. So we see that Paul was faithful to the Old Testament system of worship and fellowship. Something had occurred in his relationship with God that had prompted him to go and participate in the feast, which, as you, as you know, was a religious requirement of the Old Testament system of worship. So Paul's commitment to biblical worship and fellowship frames his decision-making. I think it's important for us to bring into our thinking. He frames his life with these broader principles within the context of his call to do God's will as the apostle to the Gentiles. And for some reason, this particular Passover, he was to be in Jerusalem with the church there, and he knew it. Next, here we see Paul's love of God's church on display. Not only in his desire to complete uh, the calling that he has as the apostle to the Gentiles, because you know, he wanted to go to Ephesus during his second missionary journey, but the Lord forbid him to go into Asia at that time. And he knows he's not going to be able to stay at Ephesus. So what does he do? He brings Aquila and Priscilla along, and he leaves them at Ephesus. So this active decision of Paul shows he likely brought them along for the purpose of helping to plant the church at Ephesus. So he's thinking ahead. He sees Aquila and Priscilla. We know they've been in Rome and Corinth and Ephesus. It seems like they're the kind of 
couple that's often on the move, so it fits them as tent makers. So he brings them along to take them, we can see why, to Ephesus to help. And as we'll see, they really educated Apollo to a great Apollos to a greater level of understanding. And then he goes back and he's a blessing to the church at Corinth. So Paul's wisdom is on display in the fruits of that. Well, next we see that Paul is going to complete the requirements of his vow. And he had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. Now, we do not know when this vow began, but we do know Paul had been in Corinth for more than a year and a half. So that could have been initiated and completed during that time. He would have had enough time to grow some long hair by then. Nor do we know with certainty the exact nature of this vow, but most likely it seems like Paul had taken a Nazarite vow. So we're going to look at that a little bit today and see how it could fit into the decisions that he made. Commentary says plausibly it may be a Nazarite vow from number six, or it may be a mere vow of thanksgiving for for preservation as, as God promised in verse 10. Now, if this vow were a Nazarite vow, then Paul, for the duration, would abstain from alcohol and uncleanness, such as touching a corpse. In addition, he would need to complete this vow by offering a sacrifice in Jerusalem, assuming that he is following the law and the tradition on this matter. It is also possible to cut the hair before offering the sacrifice to, to denote the vow's end. Let's look at uh, Numbers chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, and you'll see kind of the meat of, meat of the requirement here. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. So this is the basic Nazarite requirement. We see it's a voluntary vow before God, between the individual and the Lord, But it has this outward sign of gradually lengthening hair until the days of the vow or the conditions of the vow are completed. But what if he breaks the terms of the vow? Number six, nine and ten. If anyone dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day you shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But what if the breaking of the terms occurs distant from the tabernacle temple? The hair is cut and could be brought to the temple later for its appointed use. And what is that appointed use? Verse 18 of number 6. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. So the Lord laid this out as a special way that individuals could make a vow to him. And it uh, provided a lot of uh, unique aspects to doing God's will in that particular situation. There was an external sign of it that God put upon them that they would see and others would see 
And it had a very well-defined end where he would shave his head and take that hair to the temple and go through that ritual there where it was ultimately burned. So it's possible that something happened at Centria that interrupted Paul's Nazarite vow so that he needed to cut his hair at that time in order to remain faithful to the Nazarite requirements. But he still would have taken his hair to Jerusalem, to the temple, to complete his vow. Whatever the case is, we can say very simply that Paul keeps his vows. Last week we saw Jesus Christ keeps his promises. Paul keeps his vows Whatever the exact vow, we know he's influenced by the, his commitment to keep it. it. It's a part of his decision-making. His commitment influences his decision-making at a very high level. And so, you know, we have vows. We have promises that we've made. And these influence our decision, should influence our decision at a very high level. Promises that we've made to our spouses. Uh, promises that have been made to our church, uh, promises that we make on this level are to influence our decision-making at a very high level. What happens next? Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila at Ephesus. He came to Ephesus and he left them there. So it appears, though, the first thing he does is he doesn't go to synagogue first. It may have just been practical, but it appears as though his main reason for going there was to get these two individuals there to get started on preparation for his coming ministry there that he hoped to perform later. He doesn't go to Jerusalem alone. He brings Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus first. And even though he's committed to going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and even though the timing is tight, he begins the work of church planning at Ephesus here. So Paul's committed to doing God's will as the apostle to the Gentiles. You can see here it's likely he prioritizes his calling from Jesus even above this subjective sense he has that he needs to be at the Passover feast. So it only made sense to stop by Ephesus on the way to Jerusalem because it was not much out of the way. It didn't require him missing the feast. I also want us to see here that Paul is willing to be parted from his friends for the sake of the gospel, thinking not only about his own needs, rather the needs of the church at Ephesus, Paul leaves his fellow laborers there. It's an important point for us as well in our decision-making to consider the needs of others and not uh, get um, too narrow-focused to our own needs and the needs of our own families. Next, Paul is willing to, uh, the commentary says, he in intended shortly to settle there for some time, and he left Aquila and Priscilla there in the meantime for the same end as Christ sent his disciple before to every place where he himself would come to prepare his way. Aquila and Priscilla might, by private conversation, being very intelligent, judicious Christians, dispose the minds of many to give Paul, when he should come among them, a favorable reception and to understand his preaching. Therefore he calls them his helpers in Christ Jesus in Romans chapter 16. Now, it wasn't time for the boat to leave yet. Paul had a little bit of time on his hands, so where does he go? He himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. We see the fire of his mission is on display. And so the first seeds of Paul's gospel preaching are sown here at this visit at Ephesus. Paul embraced open doors to preach as the Lord provided and as the Lord guided. 
So he had stayed in Corinth when he had more time, but we're going to see an example here where he had an opportunity to continue preaching, but he didn't feel like he had the time at that moment. The Lord had hindered him from going there during his second missionary journey. He's arrived there, and it's going to be the hub of his third missionary journey, but he doesn't preach there in an extended fashion at this time. He's got to be patient when it comes to Ephesus. Commentary says, though he had abandoned the Jews at Corinth to oppose themselves and blaspheme, yet he did not, for their sakes, decline the synagogues of the Jews in other places, but still made the first offer of the gospel to them. And I like what Matthew Henry says here. It's worth us uh, really paying attention to this. We must not condemn a whole body or denomination of men for the sake of some that conduct themselves ill. So Paul always prioritized the preaching of the gospel and he always started with the Jews as the Lord allowed. We see this principle on display. So he, he declines to stay uh, any longer in Ephesus because of the coming feast. We're told in verses 20 and 21, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. So the Jews at Ephesus, unlike, you know, think about it, unlike most of the other Jews, wanted Paul to stay longer and preach and teach more about Jesus as the Christ. They were desirous that he would stay rather than wanting to stone him to death. He didn't need to go down uh, in a basket through the city wall with these Jews. These are more noble and better bred than those that Jews at Corinth, the commentary tells us, and other places, and it was a sign that God had not quite cast away his people, but had a remnant among them. And this should greatly encourage us to continue to preach the gospel everywhere we go, because we never know, do we, uh, how much the Lord may have been working in the heart of that individual, even if they're wearing the uniform of the day that makes us suspect that they would be against us and that they would persecute us if we shared the gospel with them. So take heart and remember the Jews at Ephesus and continue preaching. So this would have been a very encouraging development for Paul, one who'd been left dead by the Jews. But he knew the Lord had called him to keep the upcoming Passover feast in Jerusalem. So he declined their request and he set sail for Caesarea Maritime. So he's driven here by a commitment to the Lord in regard to keeping this Passover feast. The Lord had done something within him that we're not told about that made it very clear that he needed to be there for this feast. The pressure of this in Paul is why I am suspicious that it was a Nazarite vow. That he, was, he felt an objective call from the word of God that led him to need to be faithful in this fashion. He says to them, I will return again to you, God willing. And this is worth us taking note of. So Paul's planning here is based on humble submission to God's sovereignty. Humble submission to God's sovereignty should guide all of our future decision making. Paul plans, but the Lord controls, and Paul knows this. Proverbs 16, 9, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps and Aren't we thankful for that, brothers and sisters, that we are not actually the ones that 
have to have this sovereignty to direct our steps perfectly every day, but the Lord does direct our steps. Commentary says, I will return again to you, but he inserts that necessary proviso, if God will. Our times are in God's hand. We purpose, but he disposes. And therefore, we must make all our promises with submission to the will of God. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. I will return again to you if the Spirit suffer me. We'll see this in chapter 16. This was included in Paul's case, not only if providence permit, but if God do not otherwise direct my motions. So we see Paul in humble submission to God's sovereignty over his life. This guides his decision making. This guides not only his planning, but his communications with others about his plans. So what happens next is Paul goes to Jerusalem. You know, he's been there before. Text says, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. And that church that's being referenced there is almost certainly Jerusalem because he said that he was going to the Passover feast. And it is the church of the churches. You know, it was the first one. So Paul arrives by sea at Caesarea Maritime, the port closest to, to Jerusalem. And he goes up and greets the church at Jerusalem. And this going up would have been uh, in elevation. Hence, we see Paul's purpose was to keep the feast with the church at Jerusalem, not just to be at the feast, but to be there with the saints of the church of Jerusalem. And surely this was in order to worship God with them and to share mutual encouragement in Christ, our Passover lamb. Commentary says it was designated but for a transient interview, and yet Paul undertook this long journey for that, even though it was brief. This is not the world we are to be together in, this world now. God's people are the salt of the earth, dispersed and scattered, yet it is good to see one another sometimes, if it be but to see one another, that we may confirm mutual love. May the better keep up our spiritual communion with one another at a distance, and may long the more for that heavenly Jerusalem in which we hope to be together forever. So brothers and sisters, this we see Paul valuing not only the subjective purpose for which he was called to be there at this feast, but also really valuing his Christian relationships. And he takes, the, this is a major set of steps that he takes in order to foster this, these relationships and to be an encouragement to them there in Jerusalem. And so for us, how do we weigh in our relationships with other Christians, especially those whom we do not see regularly? You know, for me and my family, we apply this by trying to go to conferences and things of that nature, to presbytery gatherings and things of that nature, um, looking locally to connect with uh, other Christians that we don't see regularly. Paul demonstrates this wisdom to us as he's going through his life. We can learn from him about that. What happens next? I think Paul rests. Paul rests at Antioch before beginning his third missionary journey. We'll probably call it a furlough. Uh, when we missionaries come home, and a lot of churches will have a missionary home for missionaries to come back and have a time of sweet rest and encouragement with the people of God. He likely had this. After he had spent some time there at Antioch, 
He departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul values the importance of rest and refreshment. He's got his hand to the plow, but even the ox has to be fed sometimes. He does not jump right back into the next missionary journey. He enjoys some time there in Antioch, we're told. What is this church? Oh, you remember, it's his sending church. It's his home sweet home church with his sweetest friends, the ones that he had gotten to know best early on after coming from Tarsus when Barnabas brought him there. And the great work that God did there with the prophets and teachers of that church to really grow that church and strengthen that church into a regional hub of Christianity, the place where the saints were first called Christians there was in Antioch. Commentary says he went and spent some time in Antioch among his old friends there, whence he was first sent out to preach among the Gentiles. He went down to Antioch to refresh himself with the sight and conversation of the ministers there. And a very good refreshment it is to a faithful minister to have for a while the society of his brethren. For as iron sharpeneth iron, so doth a man the countenance of his friend. Paul's coming to Antioch would bring to remembrance the former days, which would furnish him with matter for fresh thanksgiving. But he doesn't stop, does he? We've got a whole third and even fourth missionary journey to look into as we continue in the book of Acts. He keeps his hand to the plow. He's not settling there wondering if it's time to retire. He's not settling there wondering if he's called to uh, be a local minister there in Antioch. He knows his calling until the day of his death is to the Gentiles. He keeps his hand to the plow of that mission that directs him. So once refreshed, what does he do? We're told here this is the beginning of his third missionary journey. Starting out in southern Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the churches there, likely taking the same path there through the Taurus Mountains, through that pass like he did when he got to southern Galatia the first time. Once he is strengthened by the brethren at Jerusalem and at Antioch, once the ox has been fed and brushed and strengthened, it's time to get back to business. So he's able to once more go forth and strengthen others in Christ now that he's been rejuvenated. And this certainly wouldn't have just been spiritually. would have also been physically, likely having his resources restored and being sent out with um, all the things that he needed to complete this mission. Commentary says, in some, Paul continues to be directed by God's will as he makes his plans. Remaining flexible in how he will proceed depending on God's leading. As he travels, he also continues to minister with a concern for those whom he has served in the past. So, again, let's just go over a few of these points. Emphasize them by way of questions and deeper consideration. And then we'll be done. So, first of all, when the Lord calls you into something, it is important for you to consider uh, whether you need to stay or whether you need to leave when he's called you into something. Sometimes he may interrupt that. So we see Paul uh, following this simple principle that when he's called to do something, if there's not a providential hindrance to it or some other higher priority, he follows through to completion. So the question is, do you, do you procrastinate? 
Do you procrastinate? Okay, when you believe God's called you to do something, do you finish it as much as you can? Until, you know, the interruptions occur, but, you know, playing Minecraft or looking up Tennessee football doesn't count. Okay? In addition, we see Paul staying there unto completion. And we want to be like him. So we have to have wisdom, but we want to be those who do not procrastinate. Now, in addition, we see that Paul has to understand what he's called to do, and he's able to judge wisely whether it's done or not. That's somewhat subjective, but you need to do the same thing uh, and be careful to have the wisdom needed to look at the task and decide when you can step away from it, when is acceptable to step away from it. On a kind of strategic level of questioning, how does worship and fellowship with God's people fit into your decision-making and the framing of your decision-making in life? Don't we live in a culture that undervalues Christian fellowship and faithful service to God's church and the importance of corporate worship together on the Lord's day? May the Lord bless us to be faithful to him in this regard, brothers and sisters. So we see that he had his way of thinking framed by the people of God and the worship of God. And we want to be like him in that regard. Is that how you make your decisions? Um, I think it is. I see great growth in that wise consideration amongst the folks of Cornerstone. And may we uh, continue to grow up in that as time goes on. How about your love for God's church and um, your willingness to be alone if necessary, uh, to promote others uh, if necessary rather than yourself in order to see God's church strengthened? Because isn't that what he did? Didn't he in some regard promote Aquila and Priscilla by leaving them there as an example and as a source of good teaching for the flock, the, new, the newly founded flock there at Ephesus? So as you're making your decisions and you're thinking about various options, here's a question. Does this question come into your mind? What is best for the body of Christ? What is best for the body of Christ? And you know what's beautiful? It turns out that whatever is best for the body is best for every individual in that body as well. Without exception, do not allow a false dichotomy to come into your mind. It's always the case in God's glorious and miraculous economy that what is best for the body is best for all the individuals. Now, next about vows. Isn't it wonderful God's providence? We studied this in Christian Instruction Hour today. You got a much greater instruction in uh, the idea of vows in Christian Instruction Hour that you, than you will get right now. First of all, are you careful with the words that you speak and the promises that you make, uh, the vows that you take? And sec secondly, uh, next, do you keep these vows? Um, and when you speak a word aloud and make a commitment to someone else, um, that, that uh, as Christians, we want to seek to speak the same way God speaks. Let that, let that settle in. When God speaks, does he ever need to take it back? Does he ever need to qualify it? Of course, we do not have perfect knowledge or 
uh, full power, so we know that we're going to make mistakes. But our goal should be to really value the words that come out of our mouths, so much so that we're indeed seeking to speak in the same way that Jesus spoke when he was here. And so when we've done this, when we've spoken words and we've made promises, how much does this commitment influence your decision-making? And obviously, it should influence our decision-making at very high levels. And this is, you know, why being on time, uh, being on time connects back to this. Uh, And, um, you know, our family, we're we're seeking the Lord to improve uh, in this regard. Um, Because... You know, there's, there's an aspect of when we set a time that we said we'll be there. Um, so there's other ways you can see this, I'm sure. But we want to strive, don't we, uh, to, to apply these things in our lives. So do you think this way about your word and about the promises that you've made? Next, uh, another example of the love for God's church, we see there his stop at Ephesus. He was inconvenienced um, by his love for God's church. He had the sweetness of Jerusalem and the sweetness of Antioch there before him. And he didn't know what was going to happen in Ephesus. So, you know, the question there would be, what level of inconvenience are you willing to experience for the good of God's church? What level of inconvenience are you personally, you and your family, willing to experience for the good of God's church, for the strengthening of the people of God? And I think this one likely begins to delve into the concept of hospitality and how, what is our inner response to the idea of hospitality, right? Especially hospitality towards the saints of God. And do we rejoice at this opportunity even though it may come in an unannounced time and present inconvenience to our lives. I think this is something that we can all grow up in. Next, um, we want to value the church more than we value our relationships and more than we value our own reputation. Mentioned it already, but again, when it comes to dealing with the church of the living God, Are we willing to be alone if necessary or be on our own and and be willing to promote someone else uh, like Paul did with Aquila and Priscilla? Next, um, this ongoing mission that we have, like Paul, to be God's ambassadors, there's really no timeouts. Is that how you think about it? There's not really any timeouts. There's not... This time I'm going to be preaching the gospel and then over here I'm not going to preach the gospel. There there are no zip codes where this is the gospel preaching zip code and this is where you don't preach the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, did he not shed his precious blood to deliver his saints from the work of the devil and to, through his resurrection, bring the destruction of his enemies everywhere on this earth without exception? Where on this earth does Jesus Christ look and say, yeah, that my reign doesn't apply there. Where, what soul on this planet is a soul that cannot be delivered? We don't know when we interact with someone whether we may be the one that shares the gospel with them in passing, which is kind of what Paul did, and makes a huge difference in their lives. So brothers and sisters, are you awake 
to the opportunity to share the glory of Christ in every moment of your life. This should impact our decision-making. We see it really impacted Paul's decision-making, as it should ours. Next, uh, there will be times um, when we have an inner calling, an inner sense of what God is calling us to do. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be external, external objective things that demonstrate that we're not just simply self-deceived, right? So these subjective movements of God that are inside of us that others can't see, that are difficult for us to know for sure, are still a part of how God moves today as we are filled with His Holy Spirit. You will have a sense of persistent movement in that direction by God. And the more you resist it, the stronger it will grow if it is from God. The Lord God, when He moves in His children to do His will, it will be persistent and it will be consistent. The target will remain the same. The urge to move towards the target will be consistent. It won't fluctuate. You will know that God has called you to do this. When you think of the concept of eldership, for example, there's the conversation of internal calling and external calling. And there are those that uh, are, believe they're called into the ministry, but then the external calling is absent. And then there are those who are called into the ministry by an internal work of God, and then that is confirmed through the work of the Lord externally in those around him and in the regional church as well. That's just one example. So as Presbyterians, uh, is it not true that we tend to kind of put an eyebrow up when someone says, the Lord is moving me, I prayed and the Lord's leading me in this direction? Don't we put our eye up, a little eyebrow action there? We do, and rightly so especially in today's world of subjective, subjectivism and autonomous living. Apart from submission to God's revealed word and the objectively defined criteria of truth. And finally, uh, I'll just ask this question here. Well, there's a few more. Do you say if the Lord wills it? Do you think that way about the future? When you're talking about the future, is it your reflex to say if the Lord wills it as you're going through your decision making you know not as some trite phrase but really an expression of your heart's submission to God's sovereignty in your life do you have um, the proper valuation of your relationships with other Christians who don't live here close and do you take steps to maintain those connections with other Christians who don't live close to you, that you don't see regularly, that you would have to take the initiative to go and see them? Think about that in your life and the ways that you could strengthen those relationships. Do you value rest? Are you prone to get burn, burned out? Here we are on the Lord's Day, and this should be a really restful time for us. This is meant to be a taste, a foretaste of heaven for us, whereby we are re-strengthened 
by the Lord for the work that we will do these next six days before we meet here again. But we also see in Scripture, do we not, these extended feasts that they would go through. You know, in addition to the over 50 Sabbaths per year in the Jewish calendar, did you know that there were 47 days off work in addition to that? In the Jewish calendar, I was listening to Pastor Kaiser's sermon. So, you know, we don't, we don't want to overdo that and become lazy, obviously. But we do see the necessity not only for Sunday after Sunday resting together, rejoicing, worshiping God, praising Him, receiving once again the assurance of our pardon and the joy of our salvation together. We, we want to be caught up in that every Sunday. But guess what? You know, up at Heritage, they have the Sabbath, the Sabbath festival. Have you heard about that? Or they, take a, they try to take a whole week off. And what do they do? They worship God for a week. They have songs, and they have teaching, and they have fellowship, and they have feasting, and it is a time to rest and refresh and worship God. We might want to have one of those here someday. Who knows what the Lord may do? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And then finally, in your decision-making, <clears throat> do you keep your eyes fixed upon Christ? And the work that he's called you to do. Moms, dads, husbands, wives. You know your calling. Uh, do you put, keep your hand to the plow after you're refreshed? Children, you know your calling now to embrace the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and grow up in his ways in preparation for your future family, if the Lord wills it. May God bless us to think like Paul. And to have our minds renewed by these grand principles that are to guide us in the ways of wisdom, step by step. Because it's really hard. And isn't it good news that the Lord himself directs our steps? Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has come and died and suffered on the cross for our sins. We rejoice in your resurrection, Lord Jesus Christ, and in your perfect reign now at God's right hand. And we thank you for how you saved Paul and placed your calling upon his life and for how he demonstrates your love to us and your wisdom to us as well. Lord, we ask that by the self-same Spirit that saved Paul and guided him, you would grant to us each, first of all, Father, eternal life in Christ and the assurance of our salvation in you. And next, Lord, the ongoing freedom from guilt and the joy of our salvation and peace with you as we take every step. And finally, Lord, that you would indeed bless us with the wisdom that guides us and directs our steps like you did, Paul. Oh, Father, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.